Hello and welcome to Who Watches the World Cup with me, Dominic Archer, and David Bryan. Hello, David. Hello, Dom. Thanks for having me. Oh, you are so welcome. This is the only podcast in the whole world that tries to predict the World Cup, not just through footballing terms, but also how these countries are going to compare politically on the world stage, the greatest stage of all, the World Cup stage. Uh, I'm pretty excited for the 2018 World Cup. Have you been looking forward to it? I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah, the last World Cup, I think it was like 2014, oh God, I'm an old man, was <laughs> like the, the World Cup I enjoyed the most since I think 98. 98 is the first World Cup I remember, and that, because it's the first one, it has all the highs and lows uh, Absolutely. Of, you know, of taking your World Cup virginity. It's, uh, it was a blessing for me. And this that was is a magic, ne- magical tournament, yeah. I'm surprised you remember that one, actually. How old were you then? Seven. But I have, wow. yeah, it's a, it's really really was my first one. Um, so this is you know it's a decade on. I'm I'm no two decades on. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I'm, You're aging by the minute. I really I really am literally aging ten years in a couple of seconds. But this is you know this is uh, this is a big moment for me coming back to coming back to this World Cup. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to look today at. At Group A, the hosts Russia, uh, the the plucky underdogs of Saudi Arabia, the North African giants of Egypt, and those cheating South Americans Uruguay, and we're going oh. to really we're going to focus on Russia and Saudi Arabia because that's that's the opening match uh, of the series. Uh, but we're gonna then we're gonna try and talk about uh, who we think is gonna win uh, win this group, um, and what. Any wild card things that could lead to uh, to some craziness. So, Dave, you really are the, the footballing expert out of the two of us. So, Russia and Saudi Arabia, how do these two teams even match up? I think it's going to be quite an interesting fight, actually. I mean, I think um, we've mentioned in our little uh, preamble there before we started recording that um, this could well be the opening match of the tournament, could well be the fight for not to finish bottom of the group. Right. When, you're up, when you've got other nations in the group, such as uh, Uruguay, especially, and Egypt, who, as you say, are quite strong in, in Africa, and they've won the African Cup of Nations. Russia, as the hosts, are in a very disadvantageous position in that they're actually like the, lo- they're the lowest ranked nation in this tournament, and they may well, m- might not have even qualified had they had to go through the regular qualification process. Being the hosts, of course, they don't have to qualify they automatically. Uh, how embarrassing would it be to host a World Cup and then not qualify for it? <laughs> not even that in would, it. <laughs> it wouldn't even be in it. It'd be terrific. Yeah. Um, which is it's weird to think of them as being so low, uh, ranked so low in the in the FIFA rankings. They're seventieth ranked nation in the world compared to their opponents, Saudi Arabia, who are only three above them in sixty seventh. But right. it wasn't that long ago. Cast your mind back ten years, which for you was what a few seconds ago. Um, <laughs> Euro 2008 Russia um, got all the way to the semi-finals when they were managed by Goose Hinning the, the, the Dutchman who and actually knocked out Holland on the way which you know I'm sure broke a lot of a uh, lot of Dutch hearts but I think that was it was a strange time for, for Russian football and that they had these great attacking exports that went on to tr- apply their trade in in Europe such as Andrea Sharvin at Arsenal famously scored four um, in one match I remember watching that one uh, Roman Pavlyuchenko played for Spurs. Yuri Zhirkov played for Chelsea. But now they're in this position where their squad doesn't hold all that much excitement. They don't. They very rarely export players anymore. And in fact, 
of the um, of the entire twenty three, only two of their squad are play play their trade outside of Russia. Right. Their second their second choice goalkeeper Vladimir Gabalov plays um, for Club Bruges, and the midfielder Denis Cheryshov plays for Villarreal. But other than that, no other player um, has ventured out of their homeland. And so I like this- to cast my mind back to uh, the nineteen nineties when I was growing up really getting into football for the first time in my childhood when they had players such as Andrei Chan- uh, Kanchelskis at Man United and Dimitri Karin was Chelsea's number one goalie for a few years um, in the Premier League. But since the, those those heady heights of uh, the early 2000s, it seems they really struggled to to develop any real, real strong talent. This is really interesting looking at it because, again, my knowledge of Russian football goes very limited back to well championship manager 2008 again that one actually is 10 years old it is um but with cska moscow and i'm looking at uh the you know at the the russian national team and of course the the giant of russian goalkeeping igor akinfeyev is still there of course but he is he is the only person that that i'm recognizing and he is own there are three, sorry, four players with over over fifty caps. Like this is yeah. a, a young, underdeveloped squad in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of experience on the world stage, you're right. But these, this is not a squad that's full of youth or exuberance. That right. sixteen of the twenty three players are at least twenty eight years old or over. Right. So they, so they they do have maybe some experience as far as Russian football goes, but they might lack a bit of quality with, like I say, without exporting any talent into Europe, which, oh, sorry, I should say mainland Europe because Russia are technically part of the European Federation. Um, but they do have, they have a couple of plucky young, young stars. Um, in particular, I'd like to point out um, Alexander Galov, uh, I'm going to try and pronounce his name correctly. Alexander Golovin. He's a central midfielder. He's only 22. He's been a bit of a star for CSK this year. You uh, mentioned CSKA. Um, and they, they do, they have, but they have their, their talisman really is Fedor Smolov, who's a striker. And he's, he's um, scored 12 goals and 32 caps for his nation and had a fairly decent season, scoring 14 goals and 24 appearances for his club, Kradnostar. But then their squad doesn't seem, like you say, there's no household names. And in fact, yeah. one player I'm sure they will be missing, Alexander Cochrane, who's a striker from Zenit. He, got, uh, I think, had injury problems. And um, he was doing quite well in the season just gone. He managed 22 appearances, which were hampered by injury, but got, t- got 10 goals in that time, which is pretty good. You're looking at nearly one goal every other game. So he, I'm sure they'll be missing him. So if we swap over to uh, to Saudi Arabia, you said that there were two Russian players that play outside of, of Russia. Yes, that's um, correct, yeah. Yeah, looking, looking at Saudi, they have... Three players that play outside of Saudi Arabia. So yeah, all, all oh, really? three of them, all three of them play uh, play in Spain. Um, but the the rest of the rest of the Saudi national team all plays uh, in Saudi. I don't know very much about the uh, the, the Saudi internal league. Um, I think you'd be forgiven for not being an expert in that. Yeah, in, I, yeah. In field, you know so. what? I'm I'm not even going to apologize for it. Um, so. <laughs> I I can't really understand how a a team that is built solely upon um, upon playing within its own country, especially one as enclosed as Saudi Arabia, they don't play in the Champions League. Then there may be a a Middle Eastern version, but 
I mean, they're not going to be experienced playing higher level teams. Like, how can yeah, they stand? How can they stand any chance in the World Cup? I don't know how they've performed internationally before. Well, they they're part of the Asian Confederation. They qualify through the the continent of Asia, and uh, they actually did. They actually topped the uh, Asian qualifying group on the final day. They beat Japan one uh, nil, which uh, pipped Australia to the top of the because Australia also uh, qualified through through Asia. Right. Um, and they so they managed to get above Australia on goal difference. Um, with a their actual star their star striker is a guy named Mohammed Al Salawi. He's thirty one years old and he scored sixteen goals in the qualifying campaign, which is wow. the joint high the joint highest in the entire the entire World Cup and um, qualifi- uh, qualifying uh, program throughout all the federations. The, yeah. He was joint joint highest with Robert Lewandowski of Poland, who is a oh. prolific world class yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. striker. So they have, it's interesting actually put, there's a contrast there with how little they export of their, of their players. And yet, I think, like I've said, I think Russia maybe would have even struggled to qualify with the, the squad that they have had they not automatically qualified as hosts. But Saudi Arabia's qualification went well, as I've said, but then they've had a very strange um, build-up to the tournament itself. Um, an odd story in that after they qualified under manager Bert van Marwijk, Dutchman. He left, he resigned and was replaced by Edgardo Bowser, not to be confused with uh, Super Mario's uh, nemesis. <laughs> I knew that was where you were going. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and then he only lasted five games before he was replaced and replaced by Juan Antonio Pizzi uh, just a few months later and after, after only five games. And interestingly, Pizzi was the manager of the Chilean national team throughout their qualification campaign but failed. They didn't qualify. Right. So having already qualified for the World Cup, Saudi Arabia hire a new manager who has just failed to qualify with, mm. with another nation. And Pitsy's record is not all that great. They've had nine friendlies leading up to this tournament, of which they only won three mm. and lost, lost five, including all, all of the last three. And th- that included losing 4-1 to Iraq, another country who have not, uh, well, historically. not qualified for the tournament. Yeah. Yeah, so, that that is that is very interesting. Looking at these previous results, I mean, they just a few days ago they 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 lost two one to Germany in Germany. Yeah. Like that's a pretty respectable loss. A few weeks is, before that, they so. lose they lose two one to Italy in in Switzerland. Yeah, like, that's they beat acceptable. Greece. They beat Algeria. They lose four nil to Belgium in Belgium. Like obviously losing four nil to Belgium isn't great, but I mean Belgium are a pretty high favourites in this campaign, right? So that's not too they are, embarrassing. Yeah. They have a strong squad, Belgium, and it'll be interesting to see how they do because they haven't really proven that all these world-class superstars that they've managed to amass can really perform as a team. But yeah. this could well be the tournament where they turn it on. Yeah. And so I think we can we can forgive Saudi Arabia a 4-0 thrashing by what should be the best team in the world. But, you know, these are respectable scores against, against Germany and Italy. So I, I was imagining going into this that... You know, because I, again, as I was saying, I still think of Russia as Russia from 10 years ago. So I was thinking, you know, Saudi Arabia, they're just going to turn up and, you know, Russia's going to walk all over them. But it yeah, actually I mean, seems... even the Russian, 10 years ago, the Russian league even was fairly strong. They, like Zenit St. Petersburg had a good squad of strong international players, including Belgium's Axel Witzel, Hulk, maybe even still plays in Zenit. I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Mm. But then that, and that's around the time when um, Angie were bought uh, bought out by some billionaire who injected millions and millions of pounds into their 
into their transfer budget and they bought these huge high-class players and after a couple of years I don't know how that happened but they just dropped off the map I mean they mm. didn't they had, they had Roberto Carlos they had Samuel Eto'o they had Christopher Samba no that's not Christopher Samba was Zenit actually wasn't he but he's a big personal favorite of mine especially Circa Championship Manager 2008 he was a, <laughs> he was he was a beast but um, yeah, like it, in, there's an interesting thing I've picked up about the um, Saudi Arabian squad in that the Saudi FA seemingly are quite aware that the Saudi league or at least Saudi domestic football is fairly insular. So they've sent a, uh, about 10 of their top players uh, post-season to train with top European clubs in a way to try and get them up to speed with what maybe is a higher qual- uh, quality and calibre of football that the Saudi league does, is not used to seeing. So mm. I mentioned Mohamed Al Salawi, their their top scorer. He's actually been training with Man, Man United in, right. to get up to uh, to try and keep, get him sharp and get him firing. And mm. nine other players were sent out to La Liga clubs. I think there were Levante, right. Leganes, and Villarreal. So they're really trying to um, to varnish some of these players in a way that they can't really get in their domestic leagues. Whereas Russia, you know, kind of famously, and at least in this case, with some of the, with the, what their squad looks like very uh, very insular and they're only taking really what they what they know from from their own from their own football their own brand of football. yeah no it, this is very interesting comparing what you've just said because that is almost the perfect dichotomy for transitioning over to saudi politics and russian politics what you have described is almost exactly the way that these two political systems are working which is remarkable it is remarkably similar um I really liked what you were saying about Zenit because, again, that goes over directly because we can't talk about Russia and Russia holding the the World Cup, especially without mentioning Vladimir Putin. Like, <laughs> like the reason Russia has the World Cup is because of Vladimir Putin. The reason that they got the the Sochi Winter Olympics was because of Putin. The reason they yes. got the, the, the 2012 Judo World Cup was because Vladimir Putin is... Is he a, like, is he a known judo fanatic? He is, he is a judo black belt, yes. Is he really? He really is. Like Wow. There's, yeah. I mean, that, that's a kind of coincidence, like a line you can draw without too much strain. <laughs> like, especially it, the, the way the, the world's opinion of... Or what the world's opinion of Putin is, to, for them to then suddenly have, like, garner all this great attention in the sporting world... Like it seems improbable, maybe it's to say the least, that they, they get that on their own merits. <laughs> well, that's that's what I, I'd like to kind of talk to uh, talk a, a little bit about now, because um, uh, again, so going back to Zenit, Putin isn't so much of a football fan; he's more of an ice hockey fan, which makes complete sense when you think about the kind of guy that the Putin is. Um, <laughs> but but earlier this year, he railed against the the president of Zenit because he's he's a St. Petersburg guy Vladimir Putin so Zenit is oh, his I local see. team and um the the president of Zenit as you were saying uh was saying about how you know the Russian football has lost some of its edge recently uh, the the club president Sergei Ferensko he he claimed that if they uh, played a more attractive style of football they could create a truly Russian game bring back the Russia to Russian football. To which Putin said, you've got eight foreigners on the pitch playing for Zenit. You've got two Russian citizens and the goalkeeper. That's three. 
basically saying your idea of Russian football is putting foreigners into Russian football. No wonder the national team is so lacking. Wow. Right? So, so Putin, he is a tough guy Like when it comes to stuff like this. But again, it's interesting that Russia is even holding the World Cup at all. Because as you're saying, internationally, they haven't appeared much. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Qatar happens to be holding the World Cup directly afterwards. I'm glad um, you I brought think, that up, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's been we'll, playing on my mind for a while. You know, we, we are definitely going to come back to that later uh, later in this episode. Because if we go back to the, the Sochi Winter Olympics, so this is two years ago, 2014. The Sochi Winter Olympics 2014. were... 2014, yeah, the, the, the not, Winter Olympics, not, yeah. yeah. Yeah, not two years ago then. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. I'm an, I'm, a, I'm an idiot. Yeah, I, I'm even I'm even older than I think I am. Again, my I, I, I thought I, you might anyway. want another shot of that. Jesus. Yeah. Well, thanks. I you know what. I'm going to keep going. Four <laughs> years ago. Four years ago. The uh, yeah, they, they they hold the Winter Olympics. It is the most expensive Olympics of all time, summer or winter. The oh, most really? expensive. Sochi was three times as expensive, more than three times as expensive, than London. No. Yes. And it was more expensive than Beijing. They, they calculated it cost 51 billion US dollars. And uh, Putin being into his ice hockey, he's, he's also going to have uh, affinity for a few other winter sports. Is that where you're, what you're driving at? Well, when we think about the Winter Olympics, we imagine that the Winter Olympics happen in a place where it is wintry, right? You you hold the Winter Olympics sure. in Van- in Vancouver because there are mountains in around Vancouver, right? You yes. hold them you hold them in Russia because you know Siberia is really cold, but Sochi isn't part of the, isn't part of the area of Russia that is cold. Sochi is Stalin's favorite beach destination, right? I didn't like, even know that. That's incredible. Sochi is uh, Putin himself has a palace around Sochi. This is a, a place where people go for the summer. The most expensive part of the entire Winter Olympics was the forty-eight kilometer road, the infrastructure that they built to connect everything together, as if you know. You know, he has a palace there, but it's a coincidence he wants to improve the infrastructure. You know? Oh, of course. So, um, famously, there was uh, Vladimir Putin's main opponent in Russian politics said, this road was so expensive, we could have just built it out of caviar and it would have been cheaper. Um, and then snappier. that... <laughs> yeah, well, what was snappier was that he was assassinated a year after that. So, you know. Oh, I bet what so, should I say? So, Russian politics is is absolutely insane and this world cup is is no different um which makes it it makes it even crazier that the first match is against saudi arabia because these are two countries where their politics is basically like you're watching game of thrones right (laughs) vladimir putin came to power um, after Boris Yeltsin resigned his uh, resigned his position as the, the first the first president of Russia, and Vladimir Putin took took over, and the first thing he did was arrested the richest man in Russia. He arrested the the most powerful oligarch in Russia. He put him in a cage on live television and tried him for crimes against the state. Right. Wow. 
basically the first thing Vladimir Putin does as president is says it doesn't matter who you are or how rich you are I can get you so if you know if you, if you are the 20th richest guy in Russia if you're the, the the second richest guy in Russia what you're thinking is if everyone is touchable what do I need to do to not get arrested right obviously yeah so Vladimir Putin says 50% of everything you own goes to me. No. Right? <laughs> Vladimir Putin is reportedly, it can't be proven because he runs the government, but reportedly he is the richest man on the planet because the first thing he did when he became the president of Russia was take 50% of all the money from all the richest people in Russia, right? And then now he has used that as a way to control them ever since. If you step out of line, you, you're whacked, right? But if you stay in line, the oligarchs in Russia, these are some of the richest people in the entire world, right? So as long as you're still pals with Putin, pals with Putin is another good name for a podcast. Um, <laughs> but as long as you remain pals with Putin, that you only benefit. But if you step out of line, you're in real trouble, which, again, is just the perfect segue over to Saudi Arabia. Um, because things, recent politics in Saudi Arabia is absolutely nuts. Like, this is, it is early, early Vladimir Putin, uh, Game of Thrones style shit. But we're talking currently, present day. Currently, right now. Oh yeah, over the last the last year, the last two years, because there has been the rise of this guy called Mohammed bin Salman, who is referred to uh, as MBS. Everyone everyone calls him MBS, so I will call him MBS now, so I don't accidentally mispronounce his name. Um, but he is he's a he's a crown prince uh, of Saudi Arabia, which sounds impressive. But there are like three hundred crown princes of Saudi Arabia, but he <laughs> he has steadily risen he's 32 years old he's like he's young but he is now the most powerful man in saudi arabia he's not the king yet but everyone knows that that you know this this is the guy how do you choose how do you choose a king out of 300 crown princes it's an incredibly difficult process that i researched so i could explain it to you here but okay. in research in researching it I it would take an hour to try and explain to you exactly how it works, right? But the, we the don't first have that kind of time. Yeah, we we honestly don't. But the, the first king of Saudi Arabia had around fifty sons and fifty daughters, right? So every with like a hundred wives. I was so, going to say like biologically, or he's like, yes, bi take biologically, kids off the yeah, and stuff. yeah. So all of wow. all all of the kings that Saudi Arabia has had since him have been his children. Normally, the king. The person that inherits isn't the son, it's the brother of the person who came before, which is possible because you've got 50 of them, right? Mohammed, oh, right bin, yeah. Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, will be the first person who is not a brother to inherit. He will be the first son to, to inherit the throne when he, when he does. Um, but he stands in Saudi Arabia in direct opposition to Vladimir Putin in Russia because... Since Obama left the Middle East, pulled America essentially out of the Middle East uh, a couple of years ago, Russia came back in. And uh, where America opposed Iran, Russia supports Iran. Where America opposed Syria, Russia supports Syria. But now that America is gone, the strongest power in the Middle East is Saudi Arabia. They are a G20 country, they are incredibly rich. 
and MBS is now the most powerful man in that country. Um, so the, the, this is what I would like to do just to compare him to Vladimir Putin quickly. Yeah. Um, MBS became the most powerful man in the world, or in the world, in Saudi Arabia, by manipulating it. So he, he got the richest and most powerful people in Saudi Arabia and invited them to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. When he got them in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, he arrested them all individually in hotel rooms. And guess what he did? What did he do? He demanded 50% of their money. Ha. Wonder he got that idea. Right? This is this is earlier in the year, right? He rounds up he rounds up the the most powerful people in Saudi Arabia. He rounds up his political rivals, and for the the like, we everyone has an idea of the of Saudi Arabia and it, the levels of corruption. What he says to the Saudi people, because the Saudi people love this guy, is he says these are the ones who for years have been making money off the back of your labor. I've locked them up in this hotel, and until they redistribute your their wealth back to our country, they stay in the hotel. And basically, he what? took 50% of their wealth and then has reinvested it into Saudi Arabia. Um, so take it from the rich to give to... To everybody? give to the people. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But also, uh, he tortured some guys to death. So, it's, you know, but you know, it's, it's, there's a yin and yang kind of thing going on here. Yeah, it's like, it's like a Robin Hood that's not afraid of a blowtorch. Exactly, exactly like that. But this, this whole situation in the Middle East is very interesting because Russia and Saudi Arabia are now lined up against each other. And it, it is a very strange web almost World War One-esque, where Iran and Syria and Russia all have these alliances, but then Saudi Arabia has alliances with Israel, of all countries, with, oh well, with Egypt, and now with the Donald Trump administration, which uh, the Donald Trump administration has, where Obama stepped away from Saudi Arabia, Donald Trump has, has embraced them again um, and, and come back to that. Um, oh, rich, but, all rich guys love each other, right? I'm sure, I'm sure that, Trump's... Trump. Well, we, we, are you going to get into a the Trump-Putin kind of uh, relationship? Well, I'm, I'm going to steer away from that because I want to go uh, for MBS and, uh, and where he kind of intersects with football because to say that he is the most powerful man in Saudi Arabia is I cannot forget to mention that the, the second league in, the, in Saudi Arabian football is now called... The Prince Mohammed bin Salman League. No he way. had he had the football league named after him this year. That's how how powerful this guy is, and uh, he is also largely behind the uh, the Saudi uh, Egyptian uh, UAE blockade of Qatar. Qatar at the moment is currently being blockaded by other Middle Eastern countries to try and basically overthrow their government. But Qatar is also the country that is meant to hold the World Cup next. So yeah. depending upon what happens with MBS, it's very possible that Qatar will be too economically stifled to hold the World Cup at all. Um, but there is interesting news coming out of Qatar about how this blockade has kind of forced them um, to reform their human rights and their labor laws because um, other countries don't want to trade with them because 
because of their horrible record. So they're kind of being forced to uh, to change in order to even you know keep people coming there at all. So that that is a very kind of interesting side note. But it is uh, segueing back to uh, back to Group A in the World Cup. I'd I'd like to talk quickly about uh, Saudi Arabia and and Egypt. This is a little bit before before MBS's side, but um, sure. uh, Egypt was a, a very important country in the Arab Spring uh, about six years ago, where democracy suddenly erupted across um, across North Africa with varying degrees of success, um, and. One of the people, one of the the countries that took charge, or one of sorry, one of the organisations that took charge was the Muslim Brotherhood. They took charge in Egypt, and the Muslim Brotherhood, as they sound, are a, a religious sect with political motivations. And the minute that the Muslim Brotherhood took charge, Saudi Arabia stepped in, and what Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates did was put down vast amounts of money and promises to Egyptian generals saying, if you overthrow the Muslim Brotherhood, we will back you up with money, with arms, with weapons um, to overthrow them. And a, a year after they made that promise, the Muslim Brotherhood was overthrown and the Egyptian military took over. So Saudi Arabia wow. and Egypt are very intertwined in these uh, in these relationships, and I, I was looking it up earlier, seventy eight percent of Egyptians have a positive view of Saudi Arabia. So while the Saudis really? and while the Saudis and the Russians are are very much at odds internationally, it's incredibly tense uh, what's going on there. And I was expecting to to say to you, well, you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, their their, their crown prince may say to them try hard against Russia. But you know, what chance do they stand? Well, now, they very much stand a chance, and I wouldn't be surprised if they're playing harder, because there is a point to prove in this match. Um, wow. That's, that's a whole other level. That's like, that takes football... Football takes a back seat in this kind of a relationship. Well, I, again, I, I saw this happen last year with the uh, the match between China and Hong Kong, where China and Hong Kong were playing each other. I don't remember if it was a friendly or if it was for. It may very well have been for the uh, for the Asia, uh, the you know, getting through qualify the Asian qualifiers, as as you were saying before. But everyone expected Hong Kong to get trounced because you know it's it's one city, but they held their own against China because there is a point to prove there for them. And they did lose, but it wasn't a decimation the way that, you know, the way that it, it kind of should have been. So it's why I really wanted to talk to you about this stuff, because there is there is something tangible in the the relationships between these countries and how that that plays out on the pitch. That is that's interesting. It's almost, this is um, it's kind of like Eurovision when it comes to the, <laughs> when it comes to the voting. It's like, well, I wonder if uh, Norway and Sweden are going to vote for each other. I wonder if Spain and Portugal are going to vote for each other. I bet Ireland won't vote for us. Oh, look, no, they didn't vote for us. You know, it's, <laughs> sometimes these, what are essentially silly competitions, if they come down to the opinions of the people, there can be, there can be a lot more going on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's like, it's like um, something that I've, maybe this is a bit of a tangent, so I apologise, but something that I've noticed in watching European, especially uh, English football in the last 10 years or so, is that the, the local rivalries within club football don't have the fire that they used to. Mm. And I, it's not entirely because of this, but a big part of it is because there are no 
for example, in a match between Liverpool and Manchester United, how many Mancunians or Scousers do you think are playing in those games? Exactly, exactly. Barely it's any. not. It's not like uh, you know when when Gary Neville or whether the Neville brothers would go to Liverpool and be like, "I fucking hate this place." Or like, absolutely, there was, yeah. There was that thing with with Jamie Carragher recently, where you know, the, the fans were were taunting him, and he spat and he spat into their he spat car. At them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that. That is that is it's amazing. Yeah, it's just. I think maybe uh, there are, there will be bands of football fans who are glad to see that some of the the aggression and tenacity that can lead to some violence and some unsavoury behaviour, let's say, has gone from from club football. But that's something that you can't really avoid in international football if you're born in a place and you're attached yeah. to the culture and you're attached to the politics of your nation versus another nation that you're pitted against. I'm doing air quotes here by chance. Because yeah. like we're talking about how interesting it is that Russia plays Saudi Arabia in the first game of Russia's World Cup. That they, they they probably couldn't have picked anybody else they would have wanted to. I suppose if they would they expect to win. I mean, we haven't gotten to who we think is actually going to win the, the game of football. But well, let's the... let's lay it down now. Let's lay it down. Who who who's your pick here? I think it's it's tough. Russia versus Saudi Arabia is only a match that's ever been played before once. If you can right. believe it, in 1993, and that was a friendly. Saudi right. Arabia ran out winners 4-2. Um, but to be honest, we talked about how their squads aren't particularly shining and their domestic football maybe isn't as uh, strong as it used to be, especially in the case of Russia. But I, I would, I'm going to go for a narrow Saudi Arabia win. I, mm. think I think they, like you say, they will be more motivated to do one over on the hosts than I think I can imagine of the Russia the pressure on the Russian players going into this game with I can I'm, I'm going to expect Putin in the stands watching over them and the pressure there Absolutely. is there for them for them to perform not only because it's their tournament but because of these political relationships that you've been talking about mm. but I think Saudi are going to take it as a football match and they're going to try and win the football match and they're not going to be worried about if they lose like Russia yeah. are. Saudi Arabia haven't actually been to a major, um, so I haven't been to a World Cup since 2006. So they've kind of been building, building their way back up. It was not long ago that it was a given because of the, I think because of the federation they came from, they were one of the strongest footballing nations and they would always qualify. And then after um, 2006, it kind of, it's fallen away. So they are building back up and they're taking good measures to strengthen themselves, uh, they you know with the, they took they had a Dutch manager that took them out of the qualifying group into the World Cup, and they've experimented with an Argentinian manager, which didn't work out. And their current manager is Argentinian, but he actually played for Spain as a player, so he's kind of he has that European footballing background. So and like we talked about them sending some of their squad out to European clubs for, to get them training, to get them fighting fit. I think Saudi Arabia. Uh, looking to win the football match more than the Russian players will. So I'm going to go Saudi Arabia. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I always, in every other world cup, I want to back the home team because, you know, it's the home team, but at this yeah. time <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at Russia and I'm thinking, I, firstly, I don't think they have the squad. They just lost to Qatar. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go Saudi. I think we, we should put money on it. But so, <laughs> should, should we? All right, can you? We should put this right? put money on it right now. <laughs> we'll put we'll put half half the wealth of everyone we know. We'll lock them up in a hotel and then demand okay. they put their money on Russia. Put their money on, on Russia. Okay, but yeah. this is inter- it's interesting. You said about rooting for the home team, like especially in the more recent ones, um, when they were being played in very bizarrely. In, in the context of the, the events that are being are taking place in their countries, very bizarrely poverty-stricken countries. Mm. Last one being in Brazil, one before that being in South Africa. Especially with South Africa, you're rooting for... Like, there was nobody who was hoping South Africa get beaten in all three group games, and they're, then they're out. Like, everyone right. was watching that from a neutral perspective if they weren't, you know, of the nation that they were opposing. And they wanted them to do well. But this is the first World Cup that I can remember where I... I I I would love Russia to lose all three of their yeah. games yeah. and go out. No. But then that's not because I have anything against any of their players or the way they run their footballs um, in domestically or anything, or their coaching um, systems. It's due to their uh, reputation as a nation and their political there leadership. Yeah, and that's why this podcast is so vital, Dave. That's why we are we are why we are on point with this because Preaching. again, I'm. I'm I'm looking I'm looking at Russia and going they fucking tried to kill people on our soil and I know I shouldn't <laughs> I know I know I shouldn't and I know we don't have the evidence but the fact is they tried to kill people on British soil and I hope they lose the world cup so <laughs> quickly it, moving. it would just it would just be great yeah I mean I I would I would feel sorry for the players because they they yeah. only want to do their country proud yeah as, and again, as Russians but again, I, I hope they do it with a clean sheet because I like Akinfeyev. But you yeah, know, there you go. Yes, yeah. so if you can if, pick out a, a player that you like, then yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. I mean, if we, if we can pause just so I can look at the Russia squad quickly. Hold on. <laughs> I yeah. want to fi- see if there's any player in there besides Akinfeyev that I want to have a good a good tournament. Well, let's let's mo- let's move over to uh, to Egypt because we we haven't quite uh, had a chance to look at the others. So we okay. we think we're f- we're, we're favouring Saudi in, in this upcoming match. Um, we talked uh, talked a little bit about about Egypt. Egypt is a country completely in uh, in political turmoil over, over the last couple of years. E- ever since the Arab Spring, it has been um, a religious dictatorship, then a military dictatorship. They had uh, satire. They had their, their first experience of, of satire very briefly um, before banning it. So the, what people expect in, in Egypt it has been changing rapidly. And um, the number of, of terrorist attacks in both Saudi and Egypt have risen sharply because they are, they are taking strong stances um, against, against things like this. And they, they've stood, stood strongly against uh, against uh, Assad in Syria uh, and against Iran and, and other countries like this. But th- from a footballing point of view, none of this turmoil seems to have made any difference at all. You would expect a country that is in complete chaos would, you know, f- who cares about football, right? Yeah, sure. Like, you would think it's, its importance would be minimal when yeah. the country is suffering the way that it is. Yeah, but it seems like they're as strong as ever. Well, at least, it, yeah, I think the football maybe is something that the Egyptian people can grab onto as a source of hope and a source of joy. And, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about them, but in Mo Salah, they have a, a hero. Right. 
who they, yeah, tell, who they... tell me tell me a bit about Mo Salah because again I've been out of the UK for a few years I haven't followed the Premier League anywhere near as much as I would like to so I, I know basically nothing about this guy oh well Mo Salah's got an interesting story I remember he first graced Premier League pitches for Chelsea um, quite a few years ago but it was considered a flop he didn't make any sort of impact and he was quickly shipped off to uh, Fiorentina I believe it was where he, and then on to Roma. Let me just double check that. I'm going to start again just because I don't want to get that wrong. Uh, he, yeah, he first graced the Premier League pitches with Chelsea um, in 2014, but he only stayed for a couple of seasons after only making about 13 appearances, and only netting two goals. So Chelsea shipped him out to Fiorentina on loan for a season, to Roma on loan for a season, and there he, he started to show touches of what he would eventually show for Liverpool it was uh, with Roma that he actually like really came into his form scoring nearly a goal every other game for them in the 2016-2017 season Mm. but with Liverpool coming in for him an initial fee of 42 million euros which is which is big it's just big money that's not uh it's not off that but then his season this year has been unbelievable like you if you watched him playing for Chelsea three or four years ago you would not believe this was the same player right is he He's, uh, he's, he's blitzed records left, right and centre. He's scored the most goals in the Premier League. In a 38-game Premier League season, he has the record for the most goals, which is 32 in 38 games. And he had now holds the record for the most goals scored in the Premier League season, 24 games. He holds the, Yeah, and he uh, scores the, uh, has the record for the most goals scored by an African player in a one Premier League season, which is, again, 32. And you, we, we've had, um, in England, we've had a good slew of strong African players mm. uh, Didier Drogba comes to mind straight away and so to go, to go beyond players like him and it's it's probably no mean feat sorry it's probably not too strong a statement to say that Liverpool would not have have had as strong a season without him granted they have a very impressive attacking line with Firmino and Sadio Mane but his contribution of 32 goals by himself that's probably that's probably one or two league positions for Liverpool yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. You, sorry, go on. It's interesting looking at the uh, at the Egyptian squad because they are the exact opposite of what we were just saying about the uh, about the Saudis and uh, and the Russians. Where looking at it, they have a handful of players that actually play in Egypt. Almost, all, almost uh, all of their players are either in the UK, West Brom, Aston Villa, or the, some are playing in the States. Some are playing in Saudi. Um, there yeah, are, that's right, yeah. There are not very many Egyptian players who are playing in Egypt at all, which is in complete contrast to uh, to the, the two countries that we were just talking about. Yeah, absolutely. But you wonder if you're in a position where you have a talent that is going to garner attention from from other nations and you can maybe go play abroad and you're a wealthy famous person in a country that has, is so tumultuous as Egypt I think I mean if, if it were if it were me even as much as I loved my country I think I'd want to be safe I want to keep my family safe and as well as have the opportunity to play in a I think it's fair to say a higher standard of football if you go anywhere outside of North Africa you're probably um, whether it be the MLS or whether it be in Europe or even in the Saudi league, you're going to be playing to a higher standard and probably being paid yeah. more. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's move on to uh, to our final team that we haven't even mentioned or barely mentioned at all, which is Uruguay. Now, Uruguay, 
It's kind of... It's kind of the least interesting, but also the most interesting, because on the one hand, I'm looking at Uruguay and going, well, where is the interesting political connections here? I tried to look into it. The most I could find is that Russia wants to build nuclear reactors in Uruguay, but Uruguay doesn't like nuclear power. That was, oh, really? like the, that was the closest thing that I could find, was just some kind of investment deal going on between, between Russia and, and Uruguay. Hmm. And That's that still was, interesting, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think eventually the Uruguay, uh, the Uruguay government was like, oh, go on then, give us free power. Um, <laughs> Why not? But from a footballing perspective, I mean, th- firstly, that, that lack of connections could work in their favour. But also, they, they've got to be the clear favourites in this, in this situation, right? I, I, would, I would back you up on that, yeah. I, I'd say it's theirs to lose. With the, squad, yeah. the quality of their squad and their, their good run-in for the, with, um, in qualifying... And you know, I think they only actually had one friendly recently. They beat Uzbekistan three 0 which you know they probably could have done with a <laughs> they probably could have done with their second string of, of reserve yeah. players. But yeah, I think it's it's Uruguay's to throw away. Mm. That is interesting. Yeah, and just looking at but again looking at the uh, the quality of the teams that they've that these countries have been playing against recently with Uruguay, uh, as you were saying, they've just they played the Czech Republic who. Have not been as strong as they as they were ten fifteen years ago. No, uh, certainly not. Uh, they they played Wales in the China Cup. Oh, they were they were in Nanning. That's interesting. Um, and then again, Uzbekistan, as you're pl- as you're saying, not three countries you would particularly hold up as as uh, you know dominant footballing nations. No, it's strange we- that they wouldn't. It's strange that they wouldn't set themselves up with at least one tricky warm-up fixture before going right. into the World Cup. Right. Unless because... they, they're looking at their group and going, well, what kind of football do we need to really prepare for? And I think all they really need to prepare for is how are we going to break down defences who are going to be trying their very, very best to stop us from scoring. Right. Like, yeah, how that many, is how interesting. Many, uh, how many of their players are going to be man-marking Luis Suarez and Edison Cavani and their, their other world, world-class superstars? So it kind of makes sense, and sorry, I, I've got nothing else. <laughs> it kind of makes sense. No, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So we think we're 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 putting our money on Saudi Arabia to uh, to pip to pip this first match to take the place, but we we think Uruguay are definitely, you know, they're definitely our favourites to to take the group overall. Yeah, I mean, so... if we haven't going back to the Mo Salah issue with his injuries yeah. sustained, sustained in the Champions League and the latest I'm reading is that he definitely won't make the first game and uh, which is against Uruguay he definitely won't, won't face Uruguay and there's a chance he may get back for the second game but if he can't get in, onto the pitch and in Egypt shirt before the third game I'm not sure Egypt have the strength in their squad to, to get results in those games without him right I think, let me just check well, well, what point they play Russia. <laughs> because Russia, ironically enough, may be their best chance of getting a win if that's without Mo Salah. And yeah, that's their second game. Right. So if he if he's not on the pitch against Russia, that could be tight and it could be tense. But with Mo Salah on the pitch there, if he's fighting fit, of course, because they may rush him. I don't know if you remember Michael Owen being rushed back to the World Cup. I, can't, I wish I could tell you what year it was. Um, when he wasn't fully fit and then he did his knee ligaments in the first game. Um, maybe that was a yeah. European Championships, actually. And the same thing happened with Ray Rooney being rushed into 
um, a tournament with, I think he had a broken metatarsal that he wasn't quite fit from. So the saddest thing of all would be if we see Mo, because obviously the World Cup is about seeing the greatest players on the greatest stage. Yeah. So everyone wants to see Mohamed Salah playing in the World Cup on the form that he's in. But the saddest thing of all, of course, would be if he gets there, he's not quite fit, he underperforms, he lets, I don't want to say lets his country down, like it's all on his shoulders, but I think he's probably fully aware that he could be well be the difference to take his side from the group into a potential second round. Yeah. So that's interesting. We think Uruguay definitely going to take that that first spot, but that second really does depend upon where uh, on on what happens with with Mo Salah. I think so. Yeah, and that's just the the nature of the of Egyptian football at the moment. I think is that they found a king, they found the pharaoh, as they call him, and <laughs> it's a, it's a lot of weight to put on on one man. But if anything, he's shown that he can stand up to it. And well, if, um, if, and if uh, he does get onto the pitch, if he can get back um, in time for the second or third games, I do worry that the opposition will, will take a leaf out of Sergio Ramos's book and just do everything that they can to stop him, whether that be uh, fairly or unfairly. I don't want to start too much controversy, but I watched the Champions League final and I, I think Sergio Ramos knew what he was doing, but <laughs> I, uh, we won't get into that right now. It's it's interesting that you have a similar view of Sergio Ramos that I have for the entire footballing nation of Uruguay. But that is again yeah, well, these... if um, if you cast your mind back to uh, was it the quarterfinals of uh, I can't remember which World Cup it was now, but when Uruguay faced Ghana, Ghana were capturing hearts and minds of of neutral football fans all over the world. Absolutely, absolutely taking taking African football out of the group and past the second round, and yeah, there were moments away. Well, let's say. They were inches away, or however wide Luis Suarez's hands are, away from knocking <laughs> Uruguay out of the tournament before he knocked the ball uh, off the line with his bare hands, took the red card, kept his team in the game, and they ended up winning on penalties, I think it was. So, yeah, I don't have an awful lot of love for for Uruguay, but I don't want to put it all on Uruguay because it was just what, the actions of one guy. But Luis Suarez has done his fair share of uh, controversial... Um, I've had his fair share of controversial moments. Let's let's not um, let's not forget that. But it's it's uh, he's certainly a very talented player. So let's hope he makes an impact with his feet on a ball instead of with his teeth on a shoulder or his hands on a ball. I think that is really the uh, the perfect place to uh, to end the podcast there. So thank you for listening to uh, Who Watches the World Cup, our new political slash football drama. Uh, next time we'll we'll come back with a look at Group B, which I don't know about this one, Dave. Looking at these teams, we have Portugal and Spain, obviously natural rivals, and then Morocco. That is, uh, these are three countries all tied around that Iberian Peninsula, which is incredibly interesting. And Absolutely, then, and uh, yeah, not forgetting the other team in the group who have their fair share of uh, interests from around the world outside of football. It is going to be very interesting, DS, to see how uh, how Iran manages to play uh, on the international stage. So, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye.